that the holiness of God means to be separate. Now that's true, but that's so narrow and not full enough. I mean, this is the holiness of God. The word separate is not enough. Okay? To be holy means to be set apart. But you have to understand something that there are the there, there, there's what's called the immutable and the mutable attributes of God, okay? God has attributes and character traits. His attributes are immutable. Immutable is a big fancy theological word that means that you can't get them. They're not transferable. You can't inherit them. You can't gain them. You can't copy them. So his immutable traits or attributes would be his all-knowingness, the fact that he's all-powerful, the fact that he's omnipresent, the fact these things that are he who he is because he is God and we're not. We will never, ever, ever be able to be like God in that sense. But then there's his mutable ones, which are basically his character traits, love, peace, joy, hope, mercy, justice, compassion, those things that we're told to be like God and we're to be Christ-like. Those we can be like. Now, what's interesting is holiness is immutable. In order to be holy, to be separate from something, you have to be separate from it. And we're not separate from this creation. We're not separate from these desires. We're not separate from the world in any kind of a way. And therefore, we can't be holy. And there's no way we can be holy in ourselves. There's no way we can copy him and reflect that and all that kind of stuff because the holiness is the sense of his uniqueness. Now, where you kind of the best way to kind of get this definition is it does mean separate. But when you get to Isaiah chapter 6, you see the seraphim. And there are these fiery angels communicating the holiness and the presence and the scariness and the, the wonder and the light and all that kind of stuff of God. They got six wings, two they're covering their feet, two they're covering their faces, two they're flying, they're cu- and they're on fire. And they're surrounding the throne of God, and God is on this throne that's like super high up there. And he is on this throne in a temple, and we're told that the, the train of his robe fills the entire temple. Now you have to understand that the longer your train of a king or a wedding dresses, the more powerful and wealthy you are. Because it's, fabric is not cheap. So the longer your fabric gets, the, the more of a statement you're saying, I'm all that. So when his robe fills the entire temple, which, by the way, is the earth, then that gives you an idea of his glory, his power, his sovereignty covers everything. So Isaiah steps into this presence And he comes before God, and his first thought is, Woe is me. I am a sinner among sinners. Now, the word woe means undone. And if Isaiah was a microbiologist, he probably would say on a molecular level, like being teleported through the um, Scotty beams you up and you don't reanimize right, like in the first Star Trek movie. Okay? That kind of a woe. Like, I am going to be completely annihilated and undone. I just cease to exist. I am this and that. There's no way I'm going to survive. And once again, God shows his mercy by cleansing his lips and purifying him to enable him to be a tool of God out to the nations. But one of the things that these servings are saying are holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, If you think of holiness as separateness, it's not as powerful when these angels are going separate, separate, separate is God. Yeah, no, that's kind of pathetic. 
then we typically think, well, holiness is also morality and righteousness. Moral, moral, moral is God. That doesn't seem to communicate it. The holiness does communicate separateness, but in a separateness that you and I can never relate to. The idea that God is so transcendent and so otherly to anything that we could ever comprehend that he is absolutely unique and unfathomable and nothing in creation. The, the, the three-leaf clover, the egg are blasphemous. And I'm trying to condemn you or judge you. This isn't like a prophet saying you're condemned by but to just to try to find anything in creation associated. In fact, he's going to say, you're not allowed to make any image of anything in creation to represent me because I am nothing. So this sense of holiness is not just separate as in like my red jelly beans are separate from all the other colors because I really like red. It's that there is nothing like him. He's completely unlike anything. He's indescribable. He's unfathomable. He's otherly. He's unworldly. He's, he's God. And when we come to his presence, people fall down. They pee their pants. They lose their words. They have no idea how to describe or what to do in his presence. Because, And you have to understand, nobody sees the face of God. When you get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees God more than anybody else does other than Moses. And Ezekiel says, I didn't see God, I saw his glory. But I didn't even see his glory, I saw the appearance of his glory. But I didn't even see the appearance of his glory, I saw the likeness of his appearance of the glory of God. And that makes him fall on the ground and feel like he's going to be wiped out and killed. That's holiness. Holiness is the absolute uniqueness and the otherness of God that there are no words or comparison to, and that even when we're in his presence for all eternity, there's still going to be an indescribable, unfathomable. I guarantee you that no matter how long you've been in eternity with God and as perfect and without sin as you are, one, you're not getting all your questions answered. But two, every time you come in his presence, there's going to be this undoing of you. You don't need to have sin in your life to feel undone. It's just, it's God. And so this, that's what the angels are communicating is holy, holy, holy. And in that sense, you and I can never be holy. We are easily explained. I mean, yeah, we're mysteries to each other's men and women. And yes, yeah, sometimes we don't even understand ourselves. But overall, we're easily explained. I mean, no matter what culture you're in, no matter what story is being told at what time, people are always the same in every story. And once you translate the story in a new language, we can all relate to the character in the story because humans are always the same. You can never be holy. You will never be separate from all of this to become something totally unfathomable. And that's the holiness of God. But at the same time, when we get to Leviticus, God is going to say, be holy because I am holy. And he's going to declare the tabernacle holy. And he's going to make utensils in the tabernacle holy. And the altar, and you're like, we don't know. Because there's a certain sense that you can become holy when you disconnect yourself from the world and connect yourself to the will and the plan and the people of God. That you cannot be holy by acting like him, like being kind and compassionate. 
Lots of people can do that. Even without the Holy Spirit, lots of people can be compassionate. Lots of people can calm their anger down and da-da-da-da. But the only way you can be holy is when you detach yourself from this and attach yourself to God. And by the fact that you now become a part of Him, you now are in His holiness. And you are holy in the fact that you're used by God for holy purposes. And now you become holy because he's going to use you in a way that is completely unfathomable and unique and indescribable to anything that the American dream or the world or your parents or government could ever, or your boss or your company or you and your own dreams could ever imagine yourself to be used. Because there's nothing new under the sun. And no matter what great dreams you have for yourself or your parents have for you or the American dream, it's still just the same old thing that everybody else can do. But only when you would detach yourself to the will and the purpose of God, then he then makes you holy. You can never make yourself holy. When you get to Leviticus, only God can declare you holy. And then he uses you in unfathomable ways. And that's how you become holy. Now, how do you then show yourself to be holy? And that's through your righteous acts. Morality and righteousness is not holiness. Righteousness and the way that God has defined it is how we show ourselves to be connected to him. Because then when we say, I want to be with you and know you more than anything else in the world, then we are pulled to him closer and we know him better and we begin to become more like him And then we are acting like him in our righteous acts. And so then when people look at us, they say, wow, there's something different about you. You have a joy that I've never seen any other person. You have a hope that I've never seen. I've never seen somebody show compassion like that to somebody. I mean, yeah, I see people do stuff like that, but not like that, dun, 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 so consistently over and over and over again. It's because you have now been claimed by God, who is holy, and you become holy. Now, that's still just a drop in the bucket of probably what holiness means. (laughs) But that's what holiness means. And that's what God is bringing Moses into. Moses is not holy. He's a murderer who does not know God, who is totally beating up on himself as a pathetic loser. And God brings him in and says, I'm going to make you holy. And I'm going to use you in a way that even in the 20th century, Cecil DeMille is going to make a movie about this. And it's going to be considered the greatest movie that was ever made, and it's going to wow everybody. And even though it's been years later, I still can watch that movie, and it's still wow. You're going to be used in a holy way. And 50 years later, when they're coming into Canaan, Rahab is going to be... We know what you did in Egypt, and we're still talking about it 50 years later. How many things are we still talking about that happened 50 years later, and we're still wowed and trembling with fear over it? And yet when they think of the Exodus, all of Jericho's like, holy crap, we're all going to die. They're wowed and they're in fear of it. That's the holiness of God, and that's what he's going to do with Moses. Moses is going to become holy because God is going to claim him. And when Moses is wowed by this God, it's going to change him. And then he's going to start looking like he's holy. Because when we get to the actual conversation next week, you're going to see Moses isn't there yet. Okay, he's not. He's like, where have you been? Who cares about you? You're not saving us. I'm not doing it. But by the end of the 10 plagues, 
He's going to face off the Egyptian army and his own people and say, fear not, your God is with you. That's a powerful transformation, 11 months. 11 months. Because once he's brought into the holiness of God, he can't help but be changed. And so this is what God is saying to him. You're on holy ground. And I'm going to use you in a holy way. And things are going to change. Does that make sense? Any questions? Just kind of marinate on that for a little bit. So how do you explain or how do, you, how do we help to understand the holiness of God that you to describe to Jesus Christ making the comment and the people here or the disciples and hear him say, I and the Father are one. Imagine the, 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 the moment of that, hearing that and knowing all this about the, about the First Testament and realizing that this man in front of you is Jesus who says him and the Father are one. Wow, that's all I can say. That. Exactly. Once you understand what God is communicating here, then the statements of Jesus become earth-shattering. Like right now, they're just kind of like, oh yeah, I grew up with that. But you don't get how, I mean, I didn't for years. You don't get how, no wonder people either loved him or hated him. I mean, once you understand the comments that Christ is making, what they mean, they're powerful. I mean, I've mentioned this before. Nowhere in the Second Testament does God ever reveal new things about himself. Only in the First Testament. If you want to know God, you cannot find him in the Second Testament. I don't mean you can't find him, but you cannot learn about him. He only reveals all this stuff in the First Testament. You can only know God in the First Testament. Why? Because in the Second Testament, God comes on the scene and dwells with us in flesh. The only way that you know that Jesus is God, because he begins to act say, do, and claim all the things that you've already learned about God in the First Testament. He can't do anything new, because if he does something new, then you can automatically make a legitimate claim that he is not the same God of the First Testament. So you can't learn anything new in the Second Testament, because they automatically become potentially two different gods. Therefore, you can only know God in the First Testament, and then you meet God in the flesh in the Second Testament, and you know it's Him without a shadow of a doubt because He's doing all the things that you already know about God. And there's nothing new and there's nothing less. And that's important for you to understand is that this is what God is doing here. You have to discover Him here in this weird, crazy, old, old, old book if you're really going to understand what Christ is doing in the Gospels. Now, the beauty of it is you don't have to know any of that. And even my little girl can understand enough and fall in love with him and accept him. But at the same time, the beauty of it is so complex and it's so cool and it's so dynamic and it's so multi-layered that I can, we can spend the rest of our life discovering more and more about who God is and what he's doing. And so that's important. This is where you find God. The Second Testament is where you meet him. And he does everything that he promised he was going to do. And so, yes, once you realize this, when Jesus says stuff like that, you're like, whoa. And if you don't believe it, then you have every right to kill the guy, according to the law.
God comes to him and says this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him first. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? We don't know. Many people assume that this is the same angel of the Lord that appears. Now, first thing you need to understand about this angel of the Lord is that it's not really the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew. It's an angel of the Lord. Now, two things. This is probably not the same angel every time it appears in the Bible. Why? Because it's an angel of the Lord. It's not the angel who is the Lord. It is angel of the Lord, which means an angel that belongs to him, that automatically communicates separateness. They're not the same being. It's also an angel of the Lord, which means that it may not be the same one every single time. Now, a lot of people looked at this and automatically thought it was Yahweh. And the reason is there's lots of places in the Bible where it sounds like Yahweh and the angel are the same because God's talking and the angel's talking. God's, and they, they sound like they're the exact same person and it's just changing the name. Like going back and forth from calling me my first name and my last name, but it's still me the entire time. And so that's led a lot of people to think this is actually Yahweh. But at the same time, when you get to like Gideon and his account, it's very clear that Gideon's like talking to an angel and he goes over here, he's talking to Yahweh, and you get this sense of like there's a three-way conversation going on. So, but you have to understand that a lot of times the messengers actually spoke as if they were the person. So a lot of times you'll see the prophets and they'll say, thus saith the Lord, and they'll say, I am against you, and I, and you're like, no, he's not, but you know what he means. He's the dictation of God, so to speak. So a lot of people say, well, it doesn't say that. There's no thus saith the Lord, so it must be Yahweh. But it could just be because this is a, a divine whatever, whoever it is, messenger, that that distinction is blurred a little bit more. You have to understand the word messenger, the angel just means messenger. And humans are called angels. Um, and that doesn't mean that when you die, you're going to become an angel or anything like that. Okay, like Clarence. What it just means is that God can use anybody as his messenger. And sometimes it's us, and sometimes it's divine supernatural angels. Most of the time it's easy to tell which one it is by the way that they do things. Sometimes you don't know. These people come and they go, and you're like, was that an angel or was that a human? And the Bible doesn't say yes or no, because the Bible doesn't care about explaining everything to you. There is a mystery to God. Now this has also led some people to think that this is a pre-incarnation of Christ which I really have a hard time with that. Because if you get to Hebrews, Hebrews makes it very clear for the first two chapters, it pounds into your head that Christ is not an angel. In fact, Christ is greater than the angels. So I have a hard time him saying, he's greater than the angel, except for that angel of Yahweh back there. That was Christ. And that's a contradiction of an argument. And God is too neat and too tight and too precise to make those big of mistakes. The other thing is, is why does no Second Testament writer ever make that connection? What a silver bullet to go to the Israelites and say, Jesus has been with you all along. He's the angel of Yahweh. Nobody plays that card. If, if Jesus is the angel of Yahweh, you know I would be playing that card. Because the Jews don't accept anything new. It's always old stuff. That's why the author of Hebrews quotes the First Testament so much, because new is bad, old is good. In America, new is good and old is bad. But so you know they'd be playing that card. Jesus has been with you the entire time, but nobody plays that card. Okay, the, the reality is this is a messenger of God. This is obviously a divine messenger because it's speaking from the fire. 
Yes, sometimes it sounds like it's more. Yes, sometimes it sounds like it's yes. Ultimately, and I have no idea. It's just some kind of a divine being that God is using. And there's so much about the angelic world that we don't know. And he doesn't give you the right to make things up in our culture. I mean, the Catholics actually named all the angels and all this kind of stuff. But we don't know because God didn't choose to reveal it to us. But you need to know that God is using a messenger. Now, we'll talk about when we get to Mount Sinai why God uses angels a lot more. But right now, God has come to him with this intermediary. So here's the thing. He's he's blessing Moses with this, I'm coming into your presence. But at the same time, the angel acts as a barrier between him and God. Because Moses is still a sinner. He still can't come in the presence of God. And so this is where you're seeing the sovereignty and the holiness of God saying, you cannot come into my presence. And just as the cherubim act as a shield between the Garden of Eden and man, because they cannot come into the glory of God, so this angel is serving as a barrier between God and Moses so that Moses does not die. But at the same time, God is allowing Moses to come closer than anybody has ever gotten, which shows the intimacy. And so this is the same point that I'm making over and over again because God is making the same point over and over again in different ways because he really wants you to get this absolutely holy, transcendent sovereignness of God that you cannot approach. But at the same time, he's stooping down as a loving, merciful, compassionate father inviting us in. But he's got to maintain that tension because to come too close is to die, but to be too far away is to not know God and die because of sin. And that's what the book of Exodus is going to deal with us. Then how do we know this God when you're faced with this conundrum of I can't get close, but I have to get close, and God is just and God is merciful? Who is this God that has chosen to stoop down and enter into space, time, and matter with us? Now next week, we'll see Moses' response and what God wants him to do. Any questions?